I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Thomas Jones. And today I'm talking to Lali Khalili, who has a piece in the current issue of the LRB on special forces soldiers turned management consultants. It's a review of Risk, a user's guide, the latest business self-help manual by retired General Stanley McChrystal. Lali Khalili is a professor of international politics at Queen Mary University of London. And her most recent book is Sinews of War and Trade, Shipping and Capitalism in the Arabian Peninsula. Hello, Lali, and thank you very much for joining me. Hello, Thomas. I'm very excited to be talking to you. So around the time that your piece was going to press earlier this month, US Special Forces flew into Syria to kill the ISIS leader Abu Ibrahim al-Hashimi al-Qurashi. And it's the sort of thing they do relatively often in real life and all the time in the movies and on TV. And the Special Forces operatives hold a particular place, as they seem to, in Western popular culture and the popular imagination. And how closely does that idea that we have cleave to the reality of what they do? Not very at all. Uh, I mean, I think that there is a kind of a fantasy and public relations campaign built up around them. In fact, I sort of stumbled into uh, some of what I had researched for this piece um, many years ago when I noticed that there are whole rafts of romance novels in which um, special operations forces are sort of the heroes, you know, the the, the goody, the kind of dark and uh, silent and strong type. And then I, once I started researching that, I also noticed that there were all these kinds of um, self-help books for building muscles and for not being a wimp, literally, and books for kids. And then finally, of course, stumbled onto all of these management type books. And that that was just to me the most exciting bit, in part because management self-help is such a sort of an interesting genre um, of writing, and particularly in the US, but also sells really well here in the UK. And I was really curious about how this um, there was this convergence between uh, my current two areas of interest, which is on the one hand, these kinds of counterinsurgency figures and doctrines and practices, and then the other hand, books. Um, now, around this entire sort of campaign of uh, PR that is built around special operations forces, um, it, they often don't really correspond to what happens in the field, in part because what happens in the field, uh, aside from anything else, is classified, but even beyond, even the stuff that they can write about, that the Pentagon vets, for example, and says it's okay to write about, um, it, t- it tends to be quite uh, bloody, quite difficult, quite dirty. Uh, there's a lot of illegal things uh, that happen there. Their enormous numbers of civilians become victims. Uh, they do all sorts of things that when finally journalists get to write about, it absolutely shocks. Um, and so they don't correspond to this idea of special operations guys as superheroes, goodies going in and doing rescues as they tend to portray themselves or are portrayed in those rom- romance novels that I'd written about, uh, that I'd read about. And they do write, but, and they do these books that they write themselves, their memoirs, 
you write in the piece mostly about American ones, but there are the British ones as well, Andy McNabb and Bravo Two Zero yeah. and this kind of thing. A lot of them are memoirs. Um, some of them are uh, fictionalized um, and thinly fictionalized because if they're fictionalized accounts of what happened, then they don't have to necessarily go through such a strong vetting process as they would with their memoirs. Um, and so I think in the case of um, McChrystal, his memoir, the, the very first of these, which wasn't a business self-help book, it was just a straight up memoir, was actually very heavily vetted by the Pentagon and had to remove, he says himself, that he had to remove quite a lot of it um, out of the book in order for it to be publishable. But I don't think the subsequent books are really that they need to be vetted, in part also because there's been quite a lot of time between the time that he, the, the, the incidents that he recounts in these business self-help books and when they're published. So they're not quite as um, intensely off the time and therefore classified and therefore not publishable. And who is Stanley McChrystal? I mean, maybe you could tell us a bit more about about him so he is an interesting character and the reason that he's an interesting character is because in the rank of the different four-star generals who have become kind of heroes in popular imagination in the u.s he happens to actually be politically democrat aligned more with with the sort of the centrist uh wing of the democratic party uh so in that sense different than for example petraeus who has his openly general petraeus who was former disgraced head of cia and um who had openly aligned himself with the Republican Party, again, with the center of the Republican Party. What is interesting about McChrystal is that he comes from this uh, military background. His father and brothers were all in the army. He uh, himself has kind of made his way through all of the different uh, special elements of the army. By special elements, I mean not only special operations, but also paratroopers like the 82nd Airborne and Green Berets and all of that. So he has this incredible experience of different elements of the army having worked with lots of different people in both regular and special forces sides of the military and once he uh, once the war on terror started um, he was eventually actually posted to head JSOC which is Joint Special Operations Command an extremely super classified um, element of the US military which brings together different special operations elements of the branches of the military so the US Navy SEALs are in there the um, Delta forces in there, the Night Stalkers, which is the special operations bit of the, um, uh, their special operations pilots, they're all in there. The Marine Forces special operations are in there. And this JSOC uh, was tasked with doing some of the most uh, secretive, covert operations during the war on terror. We know a lot about what they did in Afghanistan and Iraq. We don't know everything because uh, some of the places out of which they operated were closed off to scrutiny of the reporters, even the politicians, even other elements of the military, the, the sort of the more regular military, they were certainly close to um, uh, the Red uh, uh, Cross. Uh, so, for example, the Nama um, uh, base in Iraq, uh, Camp Nama base in Iraq, uh, where a lot of torture happened, was uh, where JSOC had a, had its headquarters, we think. Um, and so a lot of the, what, the, the stuff that they did under uh, McChrystal ended up becoming quite uh, huge. You know, uh, Saddam Hussein was captured. Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, who was the head of Al-Qaeda in Iraq, was, uh, was uh, captured under him. They did a whole lot of special operations type um, events that ended up getting a lot of press, uh, rescues and things like that. They did much of the same thing in Afghanistan, again, with a lot less scrutiny than they did in Iraq. Um, and then 
In uh, uh, 2011, he was uh, tasked to become the head of NATO in Afghanistan. And so he was actually removed from this uh, heading special operations forces to heading regular forces. And when he went to, the, to become the head of NATO, he ended up not really doing as well. He, um, he was so used to running forces that could do what they wanted to do and sort of in the shadows, in the dark, that uh, actually running military far more open to scrutiny, relatively speaking, uh, ended up becoming quite difficult. Uh, he uh, instituted rules of engagement, which the soldiers didn't like. And while all of this was going on, um, on a trip to Paris, uh, he and his aides got drunk with a reporter from uh, Rolling Stone, uh, who died subsequently but uh, this reporter from Rolling Stone got them drunk they he went drinking and singing songs in Irish pubs in Paris with them and they they ended up being extremely indiscreet about a variety of different figures in the Obama administration foremost among them Biden who's now president uh, but also they they said terrible things about all the various diplomats that were involved in Afghanistan and elsewhere and the uh, only person that they loved was Hillary Clinton, which is also quite interesting. And so that when when Rolling Stone published that, uh, Obama asked for McChrystal's um, resignation and McChrystal stepped down. And so that the rest of the story um, where risk comes into it, the book that he's written, uh, actually picks up from that moment where he resigned from uh, the US Army. So they're good at they're good at keeping his own secrets, but you kind of just, you just thought they'd be better at not being indiscreet if the whole they're meant to be secret, but 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 slagging off the. I think it's hubris. I think a lot of it is hubris, um, and I and I think that they became such good pals with the um, Rolling Stone reporter that they thought maybe he would keep it keep their secrets. Um, I don't know. I mean, they, that's the only thing that I could think of is that there are a bunch of cocky guys that really thought that they were so special that the rules didn't apply to them. Which, of course, in much of the time in terms of their military work, it's quite true that they do operate outside the rules. The whole point is that... And, yes. And, and it's just the names of the... I mean, think about the names of these things, the Night Stalkers and Delta Force. I mean, there's a those names in themselves are, are sort of a form of propaganda, aren't they? Part of the fantasy, this kind of... Absolutely. I mean, it is... It's There's there's so much machismo. There's so much forms of masculinity that in... Uh, I mean, in the US popular culture, you could trace it back to the sort of the image of the cowboy as portrayed in the Hollywood fantasies. Um, and, and of course, there's a kind of a... Um, there's a kind of a self-reproducing mythology around this, uh, which is reinforced with all of the different uh, television shows and films and books, all of which, of course, uh, Pentagon, you know, advises on. I mean, Pentagon does it, it is very involved. It, it lends, uh, you know, it's uh, it lends its consultants, it lends its equipment to these films and television series and whatever. Um, in return for them, in return for the Pentagon being able to sort of say what, seeing the scripts and saying what can and cannot be shown. And so I think that relationship means that that myth-making process just keeps going on and is reproduced in all of these different venues and all of these different um, media formats. And presumably McChrystal, I mean, maybe he does, would, he would describe himself as a maverick. I've seen that the, the Wall Street Journal and Forbes have both used that word for him. And of course, that's a word that comes from the Old West. Yes, and, and and so much of that language, um, actually, of uh, special forces uh, is 
the frontier language. I mean, the settler colonial fantasy really bleeds into the Navy SEALs thing. I mean, one just one example that I would, uh, actually, I'll give you two examples that I would give is that um, some of these special operations forces carry tomahawks, like literal tomahawks, which are indigenous American weapons. But also the second example is the operation in which Osama bin Laden was um, assassinated, was called Operation Geronimo, who's the name of a former indigenous um, leader, elder, there's Black Hawks, Apaches, there's, you know, the, all of the different helicopters are named after indigenous Americans. And so it's as if they are, by consuming these indigenous American his, historical and material artifacts, uh, they're trying to gain, there's a kind of a magical consumption of the power of that into them. It's it's extremely deeply problematic of course it's really racist because of course all of those indigenous americans with their tomahawks and geronimo himself were actually victims of the same military who's the sort of the you know the progenitor of today's special operations forces and the u.s army and all the rest of them so and i mean in other mythologies as as well that i mean i know you you say in the piece that um he cut that something about the mccrystal you know superficial references to greek and latin classics but but the idea of the, the sort of the, myth, the mythological the night raid by the small team of elite soldiers acting outside the rules. I mean that that happens in the Iliad that Odysseus and Diomedes yeah. in Book Ten sneak into the Trojan camp, and so it's as it were the, the oldest or one of the oldest stories or the oldest story of the West. This is this idea of this mythology of the of the special forces. I think that actually the most uh, significant of the sort of Greek and Roman mythologies in this instance, Greek, is is the, the primacy of Sparta in special operations and particularly US Navy SEALs um, self-mythologizing. So I have written a paper somewhere else which is not published, but it actually, it lists instance after instance after instance of where uh, special operations generals, um, um, officers, uh, institutions uh, invoke Sparta in trying to describe the US Navy SEALs. And I think that that is particularly interesting to me because, of course, um, it, it particularly, they invoke it in in uh, and, and in some ways that are, which, are, which are completely ridiculous. They particularly invoke it whenever they're talking about going to war in the Middle East um, because their notion of Sparta is uh, comes from that film, that fascist film, Three hundred, you know, so uh, so so it's not even perhaps not in the case of McChrystal, but with a lot of the rest of them, they don't even actually they haven't actually read about it. They've just seen that kind of a crappy film, and so they have this idea that you know they're going to fight against the Persians, and the Persians are of course this Orientalized, dissipated, you know, kind of uh, decadent, numerous but completely weak enemy that they're going to defeat, and so that that myth making and 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 they're a band of and the special operations forces are a band of 300 besieged but incredibly powerful and incredibly manly and incredibly strong spartans and so that mythology which is completely ridiculous because of course the u.s is the world's biggest military power right they have the largest special operations forces than any other military anywhere else and um whether per capita or in absolute numbers and so it's kind of funny that they see themselves as this kind of a besieged band of brothers fighting uh some gargantuan eastern army and the fantasy obviously it spills out beyond that and you you quote um, an unnamed deutsche bank executive telling the washington post that senior management this is quoting him is much more likely to listen to military commanders because they're cool and they've killed people than to a mckinsey guy in a pinstripe suit and that 
I love that quote. I had to include that because that was just so wonderful. It also says something about the way, uh, part of the reason that I really had to include that quote is because it also says something about the way that it's not only just the sort of the idea of um, military as an institution which is interesting to these uh, executives. They think that by rubbing up against these ex-military men, they're, they're capturing something of their magic, something of their masculinity, something of their machismo, something of their manliness, something of that kind of an ineffable um, thing that all of them are selling, which is quote-unquote leadership. And I think that that is why it's so pernicious, why it, absurd but pernicious. Um, and so the idea that, I mean, the McKinsey guy probably does kill a lot of people. He doesn't have to do it with kinetic uh, forces, with guns. You know, he probably just writes a vision document that ends up resulting in the devastation of the economies and peoples and climates of lots of countries. But he doesn't take up a gun. And I think guns are sexy to these folks. Um, and, and I do think it is whether or not they realize it and whether or not they're men or women. It is because of this idea that you can absorb some of that masculinity. And that question of sort of bringing that the language of war into the context of a company boardroom and, and you know these are the reasons they're doing it and in some ways it's kind of it's obviously faintly ridiculous because it's not a war there's, and there's there's something that Ian, Ian the philosopher Ian Hacking wrote about why he didn't like terms like the science wars and culture wars because it's saying on the one hand it makes um well I'll quote it it's easy he the willingness to describe fierce disagreement in terms of the metaphors of war makes the very existence of real wars seem more natural, more inevitable, more a part of the human condition. It also betrays us into an insensibility toward the very idea of war, so that we are less prone to be aware of how totally disgusting real wars really are. And there is, I mean, I think that's true about this, I think that applies to the way the idea of, you know, we're, we're going to war against this other company and hostile takeovers and this whole idea that we're, when, when they're not, actually putting themselves at any kind of risk physical or or otherwise at all yeah i think that's really interesting i think that language of war also seeps into other areas i mean susan sontag for example wrote about the way that the language of war seeped into discuss the dis discussions of disease and illness as well and so i think that that is quite prevalent in a lot of ways i think that convergence between war and commerce though is something that has been you know going on for thousands of years in in uh and although we in english in in, in the english language talk about this in this sense that actually that language also exists elsewhere i think that there is some ways in which uh war and commerce have been intertwined from uh in in, in a lot of different uh cultures and certainly since in, in the modern times. So I think that uh, convergence is nothing new. I think it's for me, for example, interesting that military logistics then ends up becoming absorbed into business and that's sort of the, the methodologies and ideas that were used in military logistics in the 19th century end up becoming as kind of a science of business in the 20th century. So those convergences are really fascinating. But the language of war in the boardroom um, is a particularly kind of a post-Second World War American language, or it could be go that it does go back a little bit further as well, but it is particularly prevalent in, in after the Second World War. And you do, uh, I, I, for, for writing this um, piece, I actually went back and reread re C. Wright Mills's um, The uh, Power Elite. And it is fascinating to see that already you're seeing that kind of a... Um, valorization of the military as part of 
business as part of commerce uh, and and that kind of a mutual absorption of ideas in, and it moves in both directions um, ends up being really really quite significant after um, the second world war I think in part that is because of the expansion of the military industrial complex I think it is also in part because of the emergence of business schools um, and the creation of these um, uh, for or formalization of these ways of doing business sort of the MBA programs and whatnot. And, and I think it is uh, also because metaphors such as war um, feed nicely into the ideas you said of what you're doing is significant and it's a matter of life and death rather than it's just you going to take over another company's you know debts and income. And so I think that it's both at an affective level and at a structural level, there are a lot of different, there's a lot of traffic between war and commerce and in, at all these different levels. And is there a way in which using the language, sort of metaphorical war language, somehow disguises the actual violence that's inflicted by, by commerce? I mean, you mentioned earlier the way that the, the violence that can be done by a, a management consultant in terms of, by making business decisions. And obviously the there is that and so pretending that somehow they're pretending that the war is going on in the boardroom while those decisions are inflicting very real violence on on the lives of, of thousands of people yeah I, I think i do think that there is a sort of a cloaking um a disguise going on here um or it's or it's the return of the repressed i mean that's the only that's the only way that i can think about it because because i think that um so i have to confess i'm uh, on, on this podcast that I was a management consultant for, for about six years um, in the 1990s uh, before I became an academic, before I went on to do my master's program and then went on to do my PhD. And part of the reason that it just seemed like such a terrible job was because in every single one of the uh, projects in which I engaged, with the exception of the very last one, and uh, which was about um, doing matchmaking kind of a, a prototype of match.com or okcupid or whatever in the 1990s it, with the exception of that one every single project that we had would have resulted in people being laid off jobs every single project that we had was about streamlining and it was about um was about automating and was about uh kind of strategic uh, efficiencies, which essentially translates into letting people go. And so it is an extraordinarily violent set of actions. But when you're, when you use that language of war around it, it seems like a distraction from the actual events that are happening. But on the other hand, it also, as I said, it could be the return of the repressed. So it's, it's a way of recognizing that what you're doing is deeply violent just perhaps not in the direct and immediate way that kinetic violence of war um, often plays out. This is the LRB podcast. If you enjoy listening to it, you'll probably enjoy reading the London Review of Books. To subscribe from just £1 per issue, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen or click on the link below. You mentioned the, the military-industrial complex earlier, and of course that was a, a phrase that Eisenhower came up with. And there was a, that after his 
very successful career as a general and he wrote his memoirs and then and he was president of Columbia for a while wasn't he and but then he and then he wrapped around for president obviously and I don't know if there's some that that trajectory compared to McChrystal's if there's some once upon a time retired generals run for political office and now they go into management consultancy if there's some kind of decline there or if it's well no I'm not sure that there is people were actually talking about um uh Petraeus possibly running for the Republican Party before he was disgraced um while he was the head McCain, of, of course was and it? McCain was of course a, you know, he wasn't a general but he was a former military guy and so he's a former naval officer and so I think that there I'm not entirely sure I think that there is actually quite there, there are a lot of uh former veterans that are now sitting in the Congress um and there is uh one of your wonderful usual con- contributors is this Deborah Friedel? Uh, am, am I mispronouncing your uh, surname? Uh, Friedel. Uh, yeah, yeah, Deborah Friedel, and she had a wonderful piece um, in the LRB a few years back about the former governor of Missouri, uh, who was also a U.S. Navy SEAL, and who now has ambitions for office. And so, you know, there is. There definitely is a political ambition among these ex-special operators. Uh, whether or not McChrystal will run is remains to be seen. I, I suspect that he is um, much more interested in sort of continuing to exercise his influence in these particular ways without the headache of having to, you know, run for office. He already um, makes quite a lot of money, the New York... Uh, New York Times or Washington Post piece, which uh, was enumerating all of the different boards he sits on, says that he makes more money uh, from sitting on those boards than any other ex-military uh, officer. I think something like ten million quid or ten million dollars or something. And so, and and he has access to channels of power via his seat in Yale's Jackson School and via all of these different boards on which he sits. Why would you want to give all of that up to be scrutinized further and? To, to have your you know everything in your life uh, picked uh, picked over by the press when you can enjoy your retirement and make money and exercise power <laughs> one of the one of the many extraordinary things about this is that he you know he was the commander of the NATO forces in Afghanistan which is a war that America lost in the end after 20 years and all the destruction and the death and everything that it's it having achieved nothing the idea that someone who so, has demonstrably, as it were, failed as a military leader, is then paid all this money and fated as this kind of, well, we've got to listen to this guy, he really knows what he's talking about because he's overseen all these atrocities kill, um, committed by people under his command. Never mind that the objectives he was supposedly trying to achieve were not achieved. I mean, part of it is uh, this the, the kind of narrative that ends up addressing this or allows for this uh, cognitive dissonance to be resolved is that the military guys did what they needed to they just didn't get support from the politicians which is a which is a very right-wing stab in the back narrative which was also very prevalent in interwar period in Germany for example where the partisans of the military uh, essentially absolved them of all of their failures and shifted all the blame over to the politicians who were the weak ones and then unpatriotic ones and etc 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 and so I think that that is 
part of what you see in the US and certainly within the military ranks themselves. And you see it in, in a lot of different ways. So you see it at the sort of the more granular level, level where the special operations forces or the soldiers complain about the fact that the politicians are, for example, are having very strict rules of engagement. They can't kill anybody just as they come about. And you also see it going all the way up to the military where the generals, for example, complain about the fact that the that the politicians are too concerned about their image and portrayal rather than, you know, the hard job of making really tough decisions about invasions and blah, et cetera, et cetera. And so you see that at every level. And that narrative ends up, you know, acting as an alibi for, for these guys who are abject failures as military officers coming in and doing what they want to and teaching about leadership, despite the fact that, you know, they demonstrably did not do much of anything except assassinations. Well, you mentioned Deborah, Deborah Fidano. She also wrote a piece about, about Theranos and about that. Yes. Which comes into your piece as well, this astonishing um, <laughs> scam. Scam. <laughs> yeah. um, so I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that and the way that the number of, the number of military people who sat on the board of this phony company. That story, the story of Theranos, is just mind-boggling and it's uh it's mind-boggling because of how many people seem to have wanted to be scammed how obvious it seemed to have been but a FOMO fear of missing out led everybody to just jump in and allow to allow themselves to be completely fooled and I think that it also helped that uh, as uh, you mentioned, and as Deborah Friedel does in her wonderful piece, uh, and as in the book that the Wall Street Journal uh, investigative reporter wrote about this, Bad Blood, uh, mentions, part of it was because of all of these uh, military uh, luminaries, military and national security luminaries, who sat on the board of Theranos. And what's interesting about that is that almost all of them were brought on by George Schultz. And the way that uh, Elizabeth Holmes, the head of Theranos, met George Schultz was because of Stanford contacts. So again, this this kind of a um, uh, kind of an incestuous relationship between this national security figures and the corporations were mediated by universities, which is also what happens with. McChrystal and Yale. In this instance, it was George Schultz and Hoover Institution at uh, Stanford. And I've got to just say what Theranos did, if people don't know, they promised to be able to, they, they said we can analyse one drop of blood and we can analyse it for all these, for everything. The idea you can take one drop of someone's blood. Yeah. 200 different illnesses. Yeah, they said, and then they couldn't. And I think part of it was because she just overpromised. Part of it was because she didn't, uh, she and her lieutenants didn't listen at all to the technical people, whether about the biologists or the software folks about, and the, or the engineers about the, the actual possible capabilities of the stuff. And part of it was because I think that uh, uh, everybody believed in her being a genius. Everybody poured money into this. And there was at some point the sunk costs were too high for them to actually step back and say, no, this is just too much. This is a scam. This is just impossible. And like the like the special forces, it's a case of people falling for, for their own mythology, their own fantasy of the, the stories that they tell about themselves. Yeah. I think one of the things that was really interesting about Theranos, and which I think that in part um, 
I also found that it was it would be relevant to the story of McChrystal was that part of the reason that she had all of these national security fo- folks on her board was because she was very actively seeking to get the U.S. military to buy the machines uh, that uh, ostensibly did this analysis of you know 200 illnesses via the one drop of blood. Um, because if you get a contract with Pentagon, you're pretty much set for life. Um, and so she thought that she was going to be able to do that. And she had General Mattis, um, who later became a member of uh, Trump's administration. She actually got General Mattis to try to get the machine bought by the U.S. Special Operations Command. And when they, the U.S. Special Operations Command, ran the machine by the FDA, FDA said, no, we, this is not a functioning technology. It was at that point that sort of the the attempt to sell to the U.S. military was back batted back a little bit. But it is fascinating that this sitting on the all of these military guys sitting on the board is actually just is really just very nakedly intended to be a channel uh, to business with the U.S. military, which is sort of the biggest um, you know procurement uh, body in in the U.S. Um, perhaps even the world. You mentioned earlier Susan Sontag talking about the way that the, the use of military metaphors in in terms of disease, so the idea of people battling with cancer and so on. And that during the COVID-19 pandemic, there has been a lot of talk of the front line. And it, I mean, it has been repeatedly in many different ways compared to a war. Some ways helpful, other ways not. I mean, I think in terms of the what it's like for the for the doctors and nurses working on the so-called front line, I think the analogy is is fair enough, probably. But the way that that now McChrystal and others are, you write in the piece about moving into public health and trying to score COVID contracts and this, I don't know, the idea that someone someone whose credentials is that they've overseen a lot, you know, they've been in charge of a lot of killing and now they're going to come along and starts providing public health seems i mean if you uh one of the one of the statistics that is just mind-boggling is that before covid started the um global expenditure on health uh so the health industry in effect is something like 10 percent of the global gdp trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars and of course covid has probably increased that exponentially and as we have seen uh, as we see on a daily basis right now in this country for example those covid contracts ended up being a way for of the Tories in, in power to get all sorts of contracts for billions of dollars for money that was moved offshore for um, uh, protective gear or other pharmaceuticals or equipment or machinery that was never delivered um, or companies that started out of nowhere and got contracts um and ended up not delivering, including tests, for example, the PCR tests that ended up a particular lab claimed to be able to do them and then was actually turning out completely incorrect results. So the health industry is, uh, I think, in terms of overall value is is the second most after military industrial complex in the world and in terms of sort of military technology in the world. And, and of course, it's kind of unsurprising then that every single grifter and con person is going to want to go and into that into that business because it just especially in circumstances where covid was creating an incredible sense of urgency and 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 a sort of sense of 
impending catastrophe, in the midst of ongoing catastrophe, impending further catastrophe, I think people were willing to just throw money at anybody who, who promised to be doing one thing or another. And I think it was fascinating that McChrystal et al. just found that to be a fa- fabulous kind of a business opportunity and started off with municipal and state authorities in trying to streamline their processes for this and streamline their processes for that. They weren't actually manufacturing anything, but they were going in and offering consulting services around this, much the same way that a lot of different companies have you know, offered consulting services to the Tories here. And so I think it, it is, as I said, when you have that much money flowing around in, in trying to deal with something that is catastrophic and something that is globally significant, all the grifters are going to move in. And all that money, if that money that has been spent had been spent more equitably across countries, but also within countries, then the, I don't know. <laughs> what what could have been achieved if that money had been spent differently exactly exactly and it's just kind of horrific to think what an opportunity was lost and things are so much now more terrifying in, in terms of what we're going to be seeing and, and the kind of austerity that is going to be imposed in order to pay for that um, flow of public funds upwards and offshore and is this fetishization of special forces that we see in in america and in the uk is it a particularly Western phenomenon or does it exist in other countries as well? I mean, for example, I don't know, do retired members of the Quds Force in Iran, for example, go on to write their memoirs and, and go into business? Yes. I mean, special operations forces are, are, are fetishized, I think, in a lot of places. But the ways in which they're fetishized is, is slightly different and it fits kind of the particular context. I mean, my sense is that the Roth forces are probably fetishized because of because they're competent, they're strategic, they're blah, blah, blah. Um, and But they're also, for example, known to be uh, willing to self-sacrifice. And so, that, so the mythology around that fits the kind of narratives around martyrdom and self-sacrifice, which is something that Iranians experience because of the Iran-Iraq war. Um, it, it emerges out of that context. Um, you also see that um, the special operations forces in, in for example, um, in Latin America that have uh, fearsome reputations uh, often because they were involved in all sorts of terrible massacres and killings of various kinds of communities, particularly indigenous communities, but also in the times of the juntas, that's what they were involved in. And so the, again, the mythology and the myth-making around them uh, is of these fierce figures. And we see we see these kinds of special operations forces everywhere having you know this this process of self mythologization. What is really interesting is that beyond the mythology, also these special operations forces seem to actually a lot of them, at least among the allies, tend to work with each other, and they tend to also provide these channels for uh, business opportunities. One of the companies that McChrystal sits on, uh, on whose board McChrystal sits on, or um, used to sit on anyway, was a company that uh, exported uh, skills, military skills from the US to the UAE. Um, and the and the company itself uh, was the American arm of the Abu Dhabi-based original company. And the guy who had established that, uh, what is described um, by the 
leaked diplomatic cables um, of the WikiLeaks, um, he's described, the guy who established that company, is described as being very close to the Al Nahyan ruling family of Abu Dhabi, and that he's himself a former special operations officer. And so that kind of, uh, he, he's, he's an he's a, um, Emirati son of a well-to-do uh, family, and he's now the Minister of Education, I believe, in the UAE. But he, again, uh, the, the, the special operations connection there led to not only McChrystal, but the former head of the U.S. Special Operations Command also sitting on his board. And so those kinds of connections tend to operate domestically in the U.S., but they also tend to operate also across national borders. Um, and, and they come about out of these uh, sort of former training uh, together, former uh, sort of uh, buying equipment together, former operating together uh, experiences of uh, special operations uh, across the world among allies. But that sort of the move, the commercialization of it, the monetization of it is a particular capitalist form. I mean, for example, if, if Hassem Soleimani hadn't been assassinated not by special forces, but by a US drone in January 2020, he would not now be writing business self-help books, would he? Uh, probably not. And and I think that if he, although having said that, uh, there are a lot of the former military guys in, uh, in, in Iran who served um, during the Iran-Iraq war and who did really well and then came back and established businesses. I mean, that kind of crony uh, businesses, the crony capitalism also also is is a factor, and in fact, part of the reason that there are there is so much um, this discontent in Iran against uh, issues of corruption and cronyism and nepotism in that country is because people who have served in the military, after having served, they do come back, and you know they they get preferential contracts, preferential treatments, placed in all sorts of positions. That's certainly the case um, in a, in a much much larger scale in. In Pakistan and Egypt, where the economies of those countries are now, particularly in Egypt, is is massively, massively under the control of the both military and ex-military. And so you see this, this kind of a commercialization of that military experience in a very naked form in those countries as well. And then, of course, Israel is probably the best example of that, where it's impossible for you to actually engage in politics or business without having served in the military. So um, that that kind of a, a revolving door between the military uh, industry and politics um, is is extraordinary there. It's something that uh, an Israeli, a critical Israeli scholar some years back called a kind of a praetorian economy. Yeah, and and in the UK as well. I mean, it happens. It's everywhere. It's, uni it's universal. Yes, and here they, of course, a lot of them, when they reach the heights of the military service, they end up going and sitting in the House of Lords. You know, so uh, so, so there is also there is also that kind of a um, reward that is handed out for for going off and failing um, at winning wars. Lali Khalili, thank you very much. My pleasure. It was fun to talk to you. You can read Lali Khalili's piece in the current issue of the LRB, along with William Davis on the mechanisation of learning, David Trotter on Greta Garbo, and Lavinia Greenlaw on Nico. The LRB podcast is produced by Anthony Wilkes. The music is by Kieran Brunt. <laughs>